This morning, we are going to uh, look at our fifth article of faith. Um, as we seek to better understand, as we've been talking about, the faith that shapes us. And this is not just the faith that shapes us as a church, as a church of the Nazarene, but a faith that shapes us as Christians. Um, and as we've looked at our, our past four topics over, over the last four weeks, one thing that I hope has become very clear to you, um, uh, perhaps even reassuring to you, is that the faith that shapes us as the church of the Nazarene, as Wesleyan holiness people, is a faith that shapes Christians around the globe. It's not some obscure uh, way out in left field faith. These are solid biblical teachings that, that can be found around the world, around the church. Today, we're going to take a look at a topic that uh, is not particularly uh, popular to talk about uh, because uh, it's something that uh, much of the world embraces, uh, and that topic is sin. <laughs> Nobody likes to talk about sin. And nobody likes it when their sin is pointed out. Uh, it's easier to just avoid this topic altogether, but the problem with that is, is that sin is the barrier that keeps us from all that God has for us, all that God created us to be. Now, normally, I would begin a message like this by going over the particular article of faith and then breaking it down for you piece by piece, but today's article is quite long. And so we're not going to go through every word of that article. I'm going to go kind of a different route. But if you look on the back of your bulletin today, you will find the complete article of faith, uh, plus a whole list of supporting scriptures that you can study throughout the week in your own personal study time. But for this morning, we're going to work our way through several parts of this particular article of faith, and then we're going to focus in on one particular part together. So as we begin our discussion this morning on sin... Let me just begin kind of with this question to kind of get, get us going. Think about this. This is, I don't need you to actually answer, but think about this. How do we know, how do we know that we have sinned? How are we aware of our sin or our wrong behavior? Think about that for just a moment. How do we know that we have sinned? How are we aware of our sin or our wrong behavior? Now, perhaps you might look back to your childhood and remember uh, that, your, that your parents or your grandparents would have taught you some things. Uh, these, they would, may have taught you, listen, this, these are the things that we do, and these are the things that we do not do. And, and those kinds of understandings are often passed down from one generation to another. But there had to be a starting point. It had to begin at some place there had to be a beginning, this is important for us to understand as we talk about sin, the very fact that we can see sin in our own lives is evidence of one of the incredible characteristics of God. And this characteristic is His grace. Because we can identify sin and evil is evidence for us that at some point we have encountered something different. Something other than sin, other than evil. We have, at some point, encountered goodness. We have encountered righteousness. And the fact that we have encountered that is evidence that God is going before us. And he is extending to us his grace. Long before we ever see it, 
long before we ever realize it. And we know that is God's prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before us, that precedes us, and is a, is a part of what helps to bring us into a relationship with God. And we're going to talk more about prevenient grace in a couple of weeks. You see, God's story does not begin with sin. God's story begins with wholeness. God's story begins with perfection. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read about what God was doing, and his response to everything that was happening, we see, was nothing less than good. Everything he saw, everything that was happening, God said, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. All that God created in his creation, he described it as being good. And in that creation, he made man and he made woman and he placed them together in a garden that he had created for them to steward and to care for. And in that incredible picture of the Garden of Eden, we see something called wholeness. We see perfection. We see a relationship between the creator God and his creation that was free from any barrier, free from any chasm, free from any sin. <clears throat> but in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve took and ate the one thing that God said was off limits, immediately there was a breakdown in the relationship What happened? Well, they were, they were tempted. They were selfish. They were deceitful. They walked away from God and his provisions. <clears throat> and they allowed all of that to break the relationship that they had been created for. Now, don't miss this. Adam and Eve... All of humanity was created for the purpose of relationship with the Creator. You were created for relationship with the Creator. We have to begin with that understanding because it will change the entire narrative. Why do I exist? I exist to be in a relationship with God. Why do you exist, Titus? You exist to be in a relationship with God. Jenny, to be in a relationship with God. Sean, to be in a relationship with God. Chelsea, you exist to be in a relationship with God. Every single one of us created for that purpose. You see, if we were not created for relationship with the Creator, why would He create us with the ability to reason, to think, to choose, to love? If we were just created to be, or, or to evolve, or to take care of what God had made, then he would have, it would have been so much easier for him to just make you a thoughtless slave, a mindless being, doing what you were told to do, but he didn't. You see, God created us to desire him, to want a relationship. And in his original creation, all of that existed. There was nothing that separated us from God. In our article of faith, it says this. You're going to see it on the screen. It says, we believe that sin came into the world through the disobedience of our first parents and death by sin. Now, this is what Paul is talking about 
when he says in Romans 3 and in Romans 6, he says this in 3, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says this, for the wages of sin is death. We believe that sin came into the world through the disobedience of our first parents and death by sin. Now, death was never a part of God's original creation. Sickness was never a part of God's original creation. Pain and hurt were never a part of God's original creation. When Adam and Eve followed the lure of temptation into a sinful choice, it opened the door for death and for sickness and for pain and for hurt to become a part of our world. Now, our article of faith says that we believe that sin is of two kinds— Original sin or depravity, and actual or personal sin. So let's begin with this question this morning. What is original sin? Well, original sin is the condition that we find ourselves in from day one. We're born with original sin. If you've ever raised a child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Original sin presents early in our lives when a three-year-old thinks the best solution to his problem is to punch his brother in the face. Original, present, uh, uh, original sin presents when a toddler throws herself on the floor and kicks and screams because she wanted chocolate milk, not apple juice. Some of you are like, amen, amen. You see, it's almost like starting out with a disadvantage. And the disadvantage is that we inherit selfishness. We inherit greed. We inherit a lack of self-control right out the gate. That should help some of you young parents to understand. It's not that you are faulty or you're not doing it correctly. They're broken. <laughs> when we are living in our original sin, we are more focused on our own needs and our own satisfaction than we are in anything else. We are like a toddler. Several years ago, I was preaching a message right here, and I was talking about this same general topic, and I used a similar illustration about a toddler throwing a fit, and I essentially said that we are, what we're seeing in that behavior and in that attitude is our sinful nature. We're seeing evil. And then I jokingly said that our response to that behavior needs to be, and some of you know exactly what I'm going to say. I said, get behind me, Satan, right? So I would like to think <clears throat> that I have grown a little bit in the past few years and uh, perhaps softened my tone a little bit and I would hope that you would extend me grace. So while I would still point to that behavior and that attitude as our sinful nature, I would probably refrain from invoking the enemy's name. Uh, and here's why. <laughs> well, while what we are seeing is original sin, like live and in color right before our eyes, what we're not accounting for is how God sees it and how he deals with it. So Romans chapter 5 Paul says this. He says, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Leave it there for a moment. Yes, people sinned before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. So you see, when my three-year-old punches his brother in the face, true story, a better perhaps more grace-filled and loving response on my part is to acknowledge that he has no comprehension of what he is choosing to do 
and what that actually is in his life. Now, my three-year-old is now beginning to comprehend that punching his brother in the face is not a good solution to problems. And so when he does still continue to punch his brother in the face, he follows it up with a long line of repetitive, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. But there will come a time when he will fully understand and fully comprehend what I'm trying to teach him. You see, my son doesn't know yet completely that it's not okay to punch his brother in the face. He doesn't know that for sure until I tell him. And at some point, I have to explain it to him. At some point, I have to discipline him so that he knows that his behavior, his choices, his attitude, whatever the case may be, these things are not acceptable. That's how we learn. Because someone teaches us. And as he grows and as he learns, I begin to explain to him why we do not do these things. And this original sin that exists in all of us is not a learned behavior so much as it is an inherited behavior. And the problem, perhaps, is that this inherited behavior never gets corrected in many people's lives. You hear me? This inherited sinful nature never gets corrected in so many people's lives. And the sinful nature that they were born with soon becomes more than an inheritance. It becomes their legacy. So while we could say that sin can be defined as original sin, as we've just talked about, it's a sin we were born with that's part of our nature, we, we would also say that outside of original sin, we have personal sin. So what's personal sin? Let's look again at our article of faith, and you'll read this. We believe that actual or personal sin is a voluntary violation of a known law of God by a morally responsible person. So again, let's look at this through the lens of a child. As I raise my son, and he begins to understand what I am teaching him and what I am telling him, there comes a point when he knows what I expect of him as his father. He knows the rules that we have in, her, in our home. He knows what is right and what is wrong, and yet he still chooses to disobey. He still punches his brother in the face because he wants what his brother has. He's still displaying the same sinful attitude, which in this particular case would be selfishness and anger. But he also has a clear understanding because he has learned and he has heard from me. And I have reminded him time and time again that this choice is the wrong choice. Now his sin is voluntary. He does it because he wants to satisfy his own desires his own selfishness. Now, sometimes we talk about this in the context of the age of accountability. It's the age that most of us in this room this morning have reached. We have gotten to the place where we know clearly what is right and what is wrong, and we are faced daily with the choice to either do the right thing or to not do the right thing. We face the choice daily of whether or not we are going to choose sin. Now, we could dissect this topic of sin in, in such great detail, as with every topic that we've covered over this foundation series, I could very easily preach a handful of sermons on each one. And I don't have time to do that. But I want to encourage you to take this article of faith that you have on your bulletin, take the scriptures that you have on your bulletin, 
to take what I share with you this morning and to really go deeper with it. But what we've looked at just now gives us a very clear definition of what sin is in our lives. Original sin and personal sin. Original is what we're born with. It's what we inherited. Personal sin really is our legacy. It's the choices we make. Now, I want to hone in on one line from the article of faith. It says this. We believe that personal sin is primarily and essentially a violation of the law of love. We believe that personal sin is primarily and essentially a violation of the law of love. The law of love, Jesus explains to us in Matthew chapter 22, he's being questioned by a teacher of the law, by a Sadducee who's just trying to undermine Jesus, and the teacher says this to him in Matthew chapter 22, uh, starting with verse 36. The Sadducee says to Jesus, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Jesus goes on. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. He says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, in our first three weeks of this series, we talked about the triune God, this picture of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we imagine, we kind of use this language of this, this divine dance, we called it. It's a picture of three persons of the Holy Trinity who are in a continual movement. And at the heart of this picture, at the heart of this idea, is the essence of relationship. A relationship that is, that is rooted in a holy love that God has for his creation. It's an undefiled love. It is a, a pure love. And since we have already seen that, that sin is in conflict with the nature of God, who is holy and who is pure, who is the image of perfect love, and we have seen how sin birthed in Adam and Eve and their decision to satisfy their own desires and their own flesh created this, this chasm between God and his creation, we can see that sin, perhaps in its simplest and easiest to understand form, does one primary thing. Sin destroys relationships. Sin comes between us and God, and sin comes between us and one another. And when sin separates, we are no longer in fellowship. We are no longer in communion. We are no longer together. It becomes a prison of our own making that keeps us from being who God created us to be. It was Adam and Eve's sin that entrapped them into their self-awareness and their pride because all of a sudden they saw what? They were naked until so they tried to cover it and they hid and they broke the relationship that God created them to be in. And sin does the same thing to us. We become trapped by our sinful choices. We hide we withdraw, we pull away from God, we pull away from other people. We become slaves to the sin that has trapped us. Now the Apostle Paul writes about this, and this is, there's again so much to unpack here. But in Romans chapter 7, 
Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. This is what Paul says. He says, sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. What Paul's talking about here is he's talking about the commands of God, the laws of God, that which the Jews would have understood that we know as the Mosaic law. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me, and it used the commands to kill me. Stick with me. But still, the law is holy. God's commands are holy. God's, God's commands are right, and they are good. Verse 13 Paul says, but how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. You see, what sin chooses to do is it chooses to separate you. It chooses to separate you from God. Sin wants to destroy you. Sin wants to kill you. And so out here we have these things, these desires of God, these commands of God, and sin comes, sin comes in and lures us and tempts us to break these commands of God, to break this relationship with God. And when we have broken that relationship with God, what was meant to be holy has actually been used for evil. Verse 14, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. It's the same thing as you saying, you know, listen, if the speed limit wasn't 25 miles an hour in Midvale, I wouldn't have gotten a ticket. <laughs> the problem is not the speed, the speed limit. The problem is your heavy foot. That's where the problem is, right? This is what we do, though. Well, that's just stupid. I don't know why it's only 55 there. It doesn't matter. It's 55 there. That means you don't go 65 or 70. We do the same thing with God's law. I don't know why God says that. That's dumb. Well, but that is what God says. That is God's law. Well, that doesn't make sense for 2021. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. It does not change. Well, love is love. You're right. Love is love. Love is holy love. Love is pure love. Well, we just need to be kind and compassionate. Yes, we do. But my goodness, we better not ever stop speaking the truth in love. That's a different sermon. Verse 15, I really, I, this, I love Paul. I don't really understand myself. Amen? For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But, but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. This is when you are driving 32 through Midvale, looking both ways to make sure the police officers aren't there. You know what's right, yet you continue to do what's wrong. I'm just, this is for my wife primarily. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. She's perfect in every way. She is like Eve restored and, okay. This hole I'm in is, keeps getting deeper. So listen, verse 17 is really applicable for right now. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is wrong, but I, I'm sorry, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if, I, but if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. 
I love God's law with all my heart, but there, there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this, this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Perhaps, perhaps you can relate to what Paul is saying here. It's this continual back and forth, the battle that rages within, knowing what you're, knowing that these are the things you're not supposed to do, but you still have a burning desire to do it, and then back and forth and back and forth. In the end, your heart just cries out, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done fighting. I have nothing left. Every bit of me is spent. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. So let me remind you of what we started with this morning. Grace. God's grace that comes before everything else. God's grace that has been calling us, that has been drawing us to him. God's grace that causes us to be aware of the fact in the very first place that sin is a prison. If we even get to the place of I don't want to do this anymore. We have to realize that there is something other than this out there. Before we can get to the place of, I'm not supposed to punch my brother in the face because he's got something that I want, we have to have the understanding that we're not supposed to do that. We have to recognize there's another way, a better way, a holy way. And so, Paul goes on. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. Like, I really want to do the right things. I really want to be a good person. I really want to be, be in harmony with God. I want to live in communion with the Father. I really want to do that thing, but because of my sinful nature, I just can't. I just can't stop. I just have to keep feeding my flesh. I keep having to, you know what, that's just the way he is. You ever heard that before? Usually it's an older man in your family. Well, you know, you just got to forgive Grandpa. That's just the way he is. No, that's not the way he is. God didn't come and send his son, Jesus Christ, so you could just be the way you are he came so that you could be transformed he came so that you could be someone different who he created you to be thank God Jesus Christ is the answer so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit that has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. Come on, church. He sent his own son in a body like the body that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for your sins. Man, 
So here's the good news for you today. You can be set free from sin. I'll take it. I'll take it. You can be set free from sin. You can be freed from the guilt that sin always will bring into your life. We can break from the, I don't want to do this anymore, feeling of utter helplessness. That freedom comes when we accept the gift of forgiveness and redemption that comes to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Is she okay, Angela? Okay. Forgiveness is a free gift offered to each one of us. It wipes away the sins of our past, sets us on a new course for living. Redemption is our gaining access to something that was meant for us in the first place. Please don't miss this, guys. She's fine. Pay attention. Please listen. Redemption is you gaining access to something you were meant to have access to in the first place. Don't you understand that God's desire for you is to restore you? God's desire for you is to regain what sin has taken. God's desire for you is to transform your life, not just give you a get-out-of-jail-free card for when it's all said and done. you got to understand this because so many of us are living our lives in our Christianity and in our faith, and all we're doing is the same nonsense, the same garbage we were doing from before we were saved, and we're just hoping that that little yellow Monopoly card will come in handy when i got to hit the pearly gates. No! God created you for something different. God created you to transform you. God created you to have his Holy Spirit work through you and in you and impact the lives of people around you. We are called to be kingdom builders, builders, not just kingdom dwellers. What are you doing to build the kingdom? Well, you can't build anything if you're living in a prison of your own sin. Don't discount how powerful sin is. Don't discount how disabling sin is. Don't discount how entrapping sin can be and how desperate you can feel when you're a slave to it. So I want you to hear this because this is important. God loves you so much. God the Father sent his Son, Jesus the Christ, to live on this earth, to take on flesh, to experience all that life encompasses, and then to give himself as a sacrifice to pay the price for your sin. I don't know if I can say it any more clearly than that. Jesus' life was sinless. He was the perfect, spotless lamb who died on the cross to pay your penalty. And he came to bridge the chasm that sin created when Adam and Eve chose to satisfy their own desires and they implanted in all of humanity and inherited original sin. Jesus came to restore fellowship, to restore relationship with God the Father. 
These gifts that have been made available to us are incredible. They're sometimes difficult for us to fully comprehend, but they're available, and they're, they're, they're there if you will just simply ask. This is what Romans says in multiple places. Number one, everybody has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everybody. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God showed his love for us by sending his son Christ to die while we were still sinners. That's so important for us. So many people fail to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ because they gotta get themselves straightened out first. There's nothing in the gospel. There's nothing in Jesus' story. There's nothing at all in scripture that says once you get it figured out, then come. It says just the opposite, opposite, that Christ died for you while you were still messed up. Christ died for you while you were still lost, while you were still angry, while you were still frustrated, while you were still addicted, while you were still cheating on your wife or on your husband, while you were still, but God died for you then so that he could restore you. And if you openly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. Because it's believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by openly declare that faith that you are saved. So if you find yourself at a point this morning where you're saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. I've got nothing left. that I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. To respond to what God is giving freely to you today. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I have been in overhyped, overly emotional worship services where people feel un, unduly pressured into something that I just don't I just don't want to, to experience that this morning. But here's what I'm gonna do. We're gonna sing in just a moment after I pray. And man, the cry of my heart, the the the, the prayer that I pray is, God, would you use me? Would you use this moment? And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in this room this morning, watching us online this morning, some of you are in a prison. You are in a prison of, of whatever sin it is that you have just coddled. Whatever sin it is that you have nurtured and to try to satisfy your own desires, to satisfy your own cravings, to satisfy your own flesh. And the lie that the devil is telling you right now is, well, that's just you. Wouldn't want to draw attention to that this morning now, would we? So just, you know, you can deal with this on your own. Let me take you back just a few more minutes. If you're going to see a victory this morning, you have to understand that that battle is not yours to wage. That battle belongs to God. And the only way the battle can belong to God is if you stop wielding your own sword and lay it at the foot of the cross. The prison that you find yourself in this morning is no match 
against the power of God to break it. I don't care what it is. Some of you men and women are addicted to pornography. And you don't think anybody else knows. You're lying to yourself. Some of you are addicted to alcohol or any number of other things. And you're, you're allowing that to control your life. And it has become a prison for you. And I just want you to understand this morning, that prison doesn't have to hold you. It's not just addictions. It's our sin can be any number of things. Our sin can be our greed. Our sin can be our pride. Our sin can be our anger. Our sin can be our unforgiveness. And all of these things become prisons. You see, when we are prideful, people don't want to be around us. When we are unforgiving, people don't want to be around us. We destroy relationships that God created us for when we are unwilling to forgive, when we carry pride in our hearts, when we're angry all the time, that also destroys relationships. Do you understand what I've been saying to you this morning? That sin is a master at destroying relationships first with God and then with one another. You were created for more. So this morning I'm going to pray. And as I pray this prayer, I'm going to pause every moment or so because if you're praying this prayer, I want you to pray it. I want you to speak these words. I don't want you just to hear me say it. I want you to speak them this morning. Because this prayer itself is not magical. But let's be reminded, what did Paul say? He said, it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and then openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I'm asking today for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. So today I turn from my sins. I invite you into my heart and life. I am choosing today to trust you and to follow you as my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Now, as we sing this song in a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond now with your actions. The first step was to speak the words, just as Paul said, that we openly declare that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's where our salvation is found. But the open declaration of our faith is important because it creates a sense of commitment and it brings the community of faith around you. This is so important, church. Your salvation is meant to be lived out in community. So as we sing, if you've prayed this prayer today for the first time, or maybe you've prayed it for the second or third or fourth time, whatever the case may be, 
I'm going to ask you to come here to the front. Our pastors are going to be here. We're going to meet with you. We're going to pray with you because this is significant. This is very important. So I ask you to listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you this morning. Would you stand with us as we sing?